Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of... Coming up today, Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. of third wave feminism and uh, very controversial turfs, I'm sure the world has been just waiting with bated breath for a man's opinion on feminism, especially an ill-informed kind of rambling opinion from possibly the whitest white man on earth. But here it goes. I'm a feminist. Specifically, what I would just call a dictionary definition feminist. Like, like if I were to channel all the mediocre essay writers out there and start my essay with the Oxford English Dictionary defines feminism as the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes. You know, like that sounds pretty good. But then I had to look up advocacy and apparently it can mean the profession or work of a legal advocate. So I think that means that I'm now officially a lawyer. Thanks, feminism. Does Mary Wollstonecraft have anything, I don't know, deeper to add to this whole thought process? No, uh, nothing deeper at all. I would say that you've pretty much covered everything one would need to know about this issue. But um, just in case you did miss a few things, why don't I say a few words? So first, and uh, as usual, a brief summary. Okay, well, Mary Wollstonecraft was a British philosopher and a writer. She's maybe most famous for her seminal work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which was published in uh, 1792. In that work, she argues, among other things, that women aren't naturally inferior to men, and that what they need to be given are equal opportunities in education. A Vindication of the Rights of Woman was groundbreaking, and one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. This is going to be confusing, but for a few minutes anyways, we are proudly independent here at the Wisdom of Podcast, but there's a doings a transpiring, a little bit of foreshadowing there. But for now, we're independent. 
but we're independent to a certain extent. Like the most obvious example being that we are in fact not one person, but two. So right there, the kind of aloneness of independence is gone. Then there's all the great music that kind of bookends this podcast. We really couldn't have that without a third person. And it turned out to record a podcast properly, you just can't plug mics into any old hole. Turns out there's a correct way to plug them in. So, ta-da, we needed a fourth person to come help us out. Plus, we have this fantastic ward who not only provides us with tax breaks, especially since, as far as the government knows, she's one of five quintuplets, but this voice you hear at the end, without her, the listeners, and, well, me, I wouldn't know what episode is coming up next. So, for the next seven minutes, we're independent. We're going to be doing and talking about whatever we want. But really, if we think about it, how independent can or should independent be? How independent should independent be? Now, that's a weirdly put. But you know, somehow I think I get the basic point that you're trying to make. You're suggesting that independence is in some sense relational. That it's not always about being and doing things alone, but rather that it involves others. So, you know, actually that's a good segue. Because it turns out that one of the central themes or principles that run through Wollstonecraft's book is this idea of independence. But the thing is, I think she has a pretty nuanced and uh, multi-layered conception of it. So maybe the best way to proceed is by first saying something about what Wollstonecraft doesn't mean by independence. That might help us to clear the ground for a better understanding of what it is she does mean. Okay, so when she talks about women and the goal of independence, I think it's crucial to notice that she doesn't have in mind some some highly individualistic ideal. That's to say, independence for her isn't about this popular idea of uh, staying away from dependency on others and instead being, you know, a a completely rugged, self-made person. So, really in this way, independence shouldn't be associated with any sort of negative freedom. You know, this idea of complete absence of interference from others. Actually, it's interesting. It turns out that independence, as she understands it, isn't completely incompatible with assistance or help from others. Well, okay, so that out of the way. What does Wollstonecraft mean by independence then? Well, For starters, and uh, most fundamentally, it seems to have something to do with simply not being at the mercy of someone else for your needs, or not depending on someone's grace to ensure life's essentials, or not being under the sway of some unconstrained and arbitrary power. All crucially important things, obviously, and a huge part of Wollstonecraft's message. So, That's one layer of it. But there's more. Independence for her also has something to do with, well, rationality. That's to say, we gain in independence when we're guided by reason rather than by both passion and conformist opinion. As Wollstonecraft says herself, it is the right use of reason alone which makes us independent of everything. 
So what does she mean by this exactly? Well, just like we're free when we're not under the sway of some arbitrary power, we're also free and independent when we're not under the sway of our passions and blindly following the opinions of others. To be led by our passions and conformist opinions is to be led by not only prejudices, but also by external forces not under our own control. This is why exercising our capacity to reason is so important and why it is it's connected to freedom and independence. It's because when we're guided by reason, we reflect on our beliefs, we think for ourselves, we both discern and put aside prejudices, and we do what's really in our best interest. Actually, you know, Plato, over 2,000 years earlier, argued for something very similar. He said that the rational part of us determines what is best and what is right and what is truly in our genuine interests. Reason, he believed, just won't lead us astray like following the the other, less reliable parts of our psyche would. Anyway, the, the general point is that for Wollstonecraft, independence is something that begins when, in this case, women start to question custom and, and so-called received wisdom, and so stop allowing others to make decisions for them and determine their life patterns. Okay, now I mentioned earlier that for, for Wollstonecraft, independence didn't amount to a kind of negative freedom, and so it wasn't incompatible with some degree of mutual reliance between people. In other words, we're not doing it alone all the time. Actually, you know, to this point, there's something I wanted to mention earlier that, that I forgot to. It has to do with this idea of the, of the totally self-created person thing. I think it's worth pausing for a moment to, to be reminded of a sort of bigger picture point here. And it's this. As much as we might believe in this, well, this, let's face it, this mostly American idea of the completely self-created person or, or self-made man thing, it just ultimately doesn't ring true. The fact of the matter is that we're just not isolated, self-sufficient, atomistic beings. No, we're all connected. Being human fundamentally means being dependent and relational. We all got help from someone somewhere along the line, whether it was by our parents or our friends or our teachers or our co-workers. We're all the product of being dependent on others in some form or another. Without others, without our families and our communities and our society, our development is just not possible. The conditions of our success lie both within and outside of us. I don't think Wollstonecraft would disagree with this. Anyway, as much as Wollstonecraft's notion of independence allows for some degree of assistance or aid from others, she does still want to argue that, by and large, dependency on another isn't good. It's not good because what it does, she says, is it prevents individuals from growing and from becoming morally better people. Now, what does she mean by this exactly? Well, on the one hand, she says that if a woman finds herself subservient to a man, and so dependent on him, 
Then she'll resort to all sorts of harmful coping strategies. For example, she'll be cunning, or she'll try to render herself alluring, or she'll act in a frivolous manner, and so on. But the bottom line is that by having to resort to such things, she's made herself weaker in virtue. And this is a consequence of the unequal and so dependent relationship that she's in. But here's the thing. Wollstonecraft says the same thing goes for the dominant man in this relationship. He too is being hurt by it, even if he doesn't think he is. And the reason for this is because his position of superiority makes him complacent. In other words, because he gets used to all the adulation thrown upon him by his subordinates, he gets full of himself, and so he gets lazy. So he too loses his virtue. So the bottom line is that inequality between two people creates dependence, and dependence inhibits moral growth. So, well, what's the answer? Well, it's not that hard to see. It's that real virtue, genuine moral growth, is only possible within relationships securely grounded in equality, where both people are to a large degree independent. Well, I've been alluding to it. It's really been it's really been a strange week at the Wisdom of podcast here. We have just gone through, and I mean just as a few seconds ago, we've come to the end and there's been a hostile takeover. And long story short, we have been acquired by Dynomex Industries, purveyors of many, many things, among them locally sourced small batch napalm and biodegradable golf clubs. And now they're apparently dipping their toe into podcasts. Our new corporate overlords are, frankly, they're none too pleased with the two of us, particularly our unwillingness to have have no advertising on our podcast, despite the literal dozens of dollars it would bring in annually. We want to maintain our kind of DIY punk rock podcasting ethos, within the corporate umbrella of our benevolent masters of Dynamex Industries. That was the case until one of the executives actually pulled me aside, one of the 14 vice presidents on the board, and she, see, we are feminists, it's a lady boss, and we have no problem with that, but she pulled me aside and she said, you do know that advertising generates money, And money can, in fact, be exchanged for goods, shiny, shiny goods. Specifically, she brought up the possibility of bedazzling my pale blue jean jacket, bringing my Canadian tuxedo to the absolute next level, finally give me something that would be good enough to get married in. So instead of reading this week's homework, I've just been living with this kind of change of heart. I've instead spent my time dealing with, well... Here it is, today's sponsor, Aunt Ginny's Compressed Flavor Cubes. The FDA says they're edible, so eat them. Mmm, Aunt Ginny's Compressed Flavor Cubes. Yes, they are food. So, I know what you and Mary want to talk about. I know what you want to say about shiny things, beautiful trinkets, baubles, and such. But please reconsider. 
I was just talking to Devin in accounting, and we are trying to close a big-time sponsorship deal with Mike's totally necessary and practically philosophical Bobbles and Trinkets Emporium. So please reconsider what you're about to talk about and don't screw this up. Now, why can't you just do the simple and comprehensible thing and ask what it is that Mary Wollstonecraft's got against femininity and its superficialities? Is that so hard to do? But, um, that said, make sure Devin keeps us posted. Baubles and Trinkets Emporium? We'd be crazy to pass that up. Okay, so let's get back to Earth. So, I definitely want to say something about trinkets and such. But first, I want to address an outlook or attitude that's sometimes associated with feminism. So, we often hear the kind of view that feminism is all about encouraging individual women to to rise to the top of the social or corporate ladder in competition with men. Now, there's obviously some validity in that, to be sure. But I think that what Wollstonecraft would say is that there's also something... um individualistic and and self-serving about this sort of outlook. In a way, what such a view does is it continues to promote the values of domination. In other words, what it does is it fosters a kind of ruthless individualism that's in tension with the most important of values. And, well, what are the most important of values? Well, for Wollstonecraft, what's really important What's um, most essential to feminism, in fact, are things like community and a holistic view of society and being concerned for, for future generations of people. Feminism, for her, promotes love and fraternity and equality, not individual gain and domination. And actually, you know, this is partly why education was so important to her. Because she viewed education not just as the catalyst for, for social change, but also as essential for the, for the cultivation of the moral life. Education should teach honorable and meaningful things, not superficialities. Education for girls shouldn't be about trinkets. So much for our sponsorship deal there. And uh, by the way, for Wollstonecraft, education was ultimately the key to female liberation. And the reason she believed this is because of the particular conception of education that she held, a conception that she basically got from the philosopher John Locke. That's to say, she followed Locke in believing that we're all blank slates at birth, something that um, makes the power of education for all extremely promising. I mean, if we have no inherent qualities, and there are no innate hierarchies, because we're all just blank slates, then really it's all a matter of exposing children, and in this case girls, to the right ideas early on in life. Anyway, I was saying something about teaching superficialities a second ago, and I want to get back to that because, in fact, a large part of Wollstonecraft's attention in her book is focused on just this, namely that girls are taught niceties and manners and propriety and they're taught to focus on appearance and beauty, all of which she thinks reflects an idealized male construction. In fact, you know what? Now that I think about it, the philosopher Rousseau, who was living during this time, was very, very influential here. 
I mean, he famously writes in his book on education, Emile, that girls should follow male-dictated patterns. That's to say, they should have cultivated in them a fondness for, for jewelry and mirrors, and they should learn to be submissive, and basically, they should only be educated in womanly things. Actually, it's pretty remarkable that given the overall message in his philosophy on the importance of such things like uh, equality and, and self-sufficiency and freedom, that Rousseau at the same time argues for traditional sex roles like this. I don't know, maybe, as some have speculated, Rousseau's sexist position here is explained by his deep-seated fear of woman's power over men. Anyway, well, okay, so Wollstonecraft was reacting to all of this. She demands that we stop teaching girls to focus on empty-headed things like appearance and niceties, and instead point them in the direction of higher and more substantial aims, like uh, morality and philosophy. The bottom line is that for her, we don't do girls, and so women, any favors by, by educating them in this way. It actually makes them worse as people. In her own words, women are weakened by this false refinement. Actually, she says a lot of interesting things in this regard, but one in particular stands out to me. Namely, she tries to remind her women readers that at the end of the day, beauty is not an accomplishment. A solid skill is much more admirable. As um, she herself says, how much more respectable is the woman who earns her own bread rather than just being beautiful? Now, I don't know, but it seems to me that a lot of this is still relevant today, no? I mean, we're a culture obsessed with beauty. And um, speaking of accomplishment, you could argue that this obsession distracts many people from, from more important goals in life. To be overly concerned with beauty and with brand is to take our time and our attention and our emotional resources away from things that deep down we all know we should be spending those resources on. Do we really want a society where, where strength and usefulness and genuine accomplishment are sacrificed to beauty? Do we really want to be like the, uh, the mythological narcissist? That's to say, do we want to waste away gazing at our own image in a pool reduced in the end to a frivolous, withering flower? Listening to the Wisdom of Podcasts. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Meaning, not happiness. Mm-hmm.